Let's begin with prayer. Let's uh, stand and we'll ask God's blessing upon our study this evening. With much gratitude and thankfulness to Thee, our Lord, uh, we gather to be fed by Thee. We praise Thee that uh, Thou hast prepared a table before us and that the Lord Jesus uh, brings his spiritual food uh, to nourish our souls. Bless now the meal that, that thou hast prepared. May we eat, Lord, by faith, uh, in love, with joy and thanksgiving, uh, thy word and thy truth. Cleanse us of our sins as we approach thee, that we may uh, have nothing uh, by way of our sin and falling short, Lord, uh, to hinder uh, our enjoyment of this meal. We thank thee, our God, for our Savior and for the word of truth and the word of life. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8, and we'll be reading and considering verses 16 through 20, John 8, 16 through 20. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. But I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy Father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my Father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. So by way of review from the last study, you remember that uh, the Lord Jesus in John 8 verses 3 through 11 rendered his judgment in the matter of the woman that was taken in adultery. And he continues his teaching that he had begun uh, in verse 2 and early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. Then he was interrupted by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders who brought this woman that was taken in adultery, uh, who was set up, uh, who uh, was entrapped, and they brought her to him in order to entrap him and in order to find fault with him, uh, hoping that he would, however he ruled, he would turn a certain segment of, of the society 
the Jewish society against him. And then the Lord in verse 12, we read, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, so here he begins by saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This bold declaration of the Lord Jesus in saying, I am the light of the world, uh, is basically, again, as we noted, a, a way of him declaring that he is God. I am. He's the great I am. But he's also contrasting the fact that he is light, he is truth, he is righteousness with what had just happened, revealing the darkness on the part of the religious leaders, uh, their corruption. They're seeking to find fault in him by setting this woman up uh, in this matter of adultery. Uh, their hearts were wicked, their hearts were evil, and his light exposes their corruption. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, understand again why he says that in that context. He's contrasting his light and truth, righteousness, with what had just happened. And then the Lord Jesus, uh, after verse 12, uh, bears record or testimony concerning himself that he uh, is the son of God. His testimony is true. Uh, his testimony is self-attesting. He does not need uh, a higher witness than himself, being the son of God, to confirm what he has already said about himself. Uh, we, as mere human beings, uh, find that confirmation to what is being said in, for example, uh, in a court of law or whatever, two or three witnesses, uh, is, um, is, adds to our testimony, confirms our testimony, because we're mere human beings. Uh, the Lord Jesus doesn't need that. Uh, he is the Son of God, and so he speaks of himself, he says. He needs no other witness. And then we concluded uh, in verse 15, where Jesus says, Ye, those religious leaders there, uh, Jewish religious leaders, judge after the flesh. They judge uh, carnally, fleshly, according to appearances. And Jesus says, I judge no man. And we, we looked at that and said, Jesus is not saying that he judges no man in an absolute sense. Uh, he's saying, in effect, I judge no man after the flesh. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man after the flesh. And so uh, he had said in the previous chapter, John 7, 24, uh, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And so likewise, Jesus judges with righteous judgment. Uh, uh, he's not saying he judges no man in an absolute sense. And so we come to verse 16. Our new 
the new uh, portion that we're looking at from John 8. The Lord Jesus says, And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. And so, Lord Jesus here is clarifying. In effect, he's saying, uh, even if I am presently judging, my judgment is trustworthy and righteous. As we noted, I think, last week, that uh, Jesus even says uh, in the Gospel of John on a number of occasions that he does judge. And so, again, uh, one cannot take verse 15, I judge no man to be in an absolute sense because he even says not, not only did he come to save, but he also came to judge in his first coming. Uh, John 5, just to review, John 5.22, Jesus says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So by way of uh, the Lord Jesus being uh, the mediator between God and man, uh, he has committed, the Father has committed all judgment uh, unto the Son. So if there's any judgment that happens, and obviously... God has not ceased to judge man since Christ came. Uh, nations are judged, individuals are judged. All judgments committed to the Son. The Son has been judging uh, as uh, the Lord's King, and as the Father's King, and as the Father's mediator. He, he has been given that part of his royal duty as our mediator. Likewise, in John 3.17, he that believeth on him, that is on Christ, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He is condemned already. Now, all judgment has been given to the Son by the Father, and he's already condemned because he doesn't believe who's judged him. The Son. The Son's judged him. Uh, if he does not believe, if one does not believe, he's condemned already. Uh, John 9.39. Jesus says, And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world that they which see not might see, and they that, and that they which see might be made blind. For judgment I am come into this world. Likewise, John 12, 31. John 12, 31 says, this is Jesus speaking, Now is the judgment of this world. Well, if it is happening now, who's doing it? Well, again, all judgment has been committed to the Son by the Father. So it must be Jesus. If now is the judgment of this world, it must be, the world must be judged by the Lord Jesus. So back to 
John chapter 8, verse 16. Though the judgment of Jesus is true and more than sufficient to justify what is right and condemn what is wrong, Jesus says, I'm not alone in my judgment. Even if I am uh, judging of myself, I'm, my judgment is true, but Jesus says, but I'm not alone in my judgment. For he says that the Father, God the Father, who sent me, joins with me in the judgment that I render. So that, again, the Lord Jesus is making clear that uh, his judgment, Christ's judgment, and the Father's judgment is one and the same. That the Father uh, is approves of the judgment of the Son. Uh, there's not any discrepancy, there's not any disagreement uh, between the judgment of the Father and the judgment of the Son. In fact, Jesus is just passing the judgment of the Father. You know, we, we could say, how, how could it be otherwise than that Jesus is passing the judgment of the Father inasmuch as they, Jesus, being the Son of God, is of one essence, one divine essence uh, with the Father, uh, one divine and righteous nature, with the Father. Uh, Jesus says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Again, one nature, one divine, righteous, holy nature. So how could there be possibly any uh, inconsistency and difference of judgment between the Father and the Son? The same nature, same righteousness divine nature. Verse 17, Jesus continues, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. The Lord Jesus here appeals to the law of Moses that the religious leaders themselves claim to believe and also to teach. And in that very law, it says that the testimony of two credible witnesses is accepted in a court of law as confirmation of the truth of their testimony. For example, going back to the law in Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 17.6 At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. So again um, capital offenses could only be carried out uh, by the testimony of two, minimally two, or three credible witnesses. Likewise, in Deuteronomy 
One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, and any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. And so the Lord again in John 8, 17 and appealing to the law of Moses is beginning to make a case that even in your law, which you accept as being inspired, that you believe uh, is true, comes from God, you even accept the fact that, that two credible witnesses establish uh, that which is right uh, in, a, in a case that is brought into a court. When the Lord Jesus, again, he emphasizes this when in verse 17 he says, your law, your law. He's not saying that it's not his law by saying your law, but he's simply emphasizing uh, that this is not something you can easily dismiss. This is what, what you believe uh, the law uh, to teach as well the law that you accept. And in fact, uh, having simply stated that, and we having looked at Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15, at the mouth of two or three credible witnesses, what had they just done? They had sought to condemn a woman taken in adultery without having any credible witnesses. Yes, she was taken in adultery. That, that doesn't appear to have been disputed. But they did not have two or three credible witnesses that were not partakers of the sin, which meant that they could not testify against her since they were involved in setting her up and entrapping her, they were no longer credible witnesses. And so again, here we find that uh, the Lord speaking that even in your law, he says, you know, two witnesses establish and confirm uh, a matter in a court of law. Uh, he's uh, again uh, seeking to point the finger at them and say uh, your law condemns what you have just done verse 18 Jesus again continues I am one that bear witness of myself and the father that sent me beareth witness of me So Jesus here says that they're not simply two human persons that come as witnesses to what he has said. That's what the law required, you know, at least two human witnesses, two or three human witnesses. But what Jesus is saying, um, uh, uh, there are two divine persons 
that bear testimony to what I have said and to who I am and to why I have come. Two divine persons that come as witnesses. God the Son, God the Father who sent the Son. The Apostle John in his epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 9, says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. So if we will receive the witness of credible human witnesses, then the testimony of divine witnesses uh, is even that much greater. And so the Lord is pointing out again the greatness uh, of having two divine witnesses. Now, consider again how the Father bore witness. We know how the Son did in his own words and by way of his own miracles and, and his, his testimony, uh, his love, his compassion, uh, his righteousness, his holiness, all of these means. We know how the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry was a witness to what he said uh, as being, again, the Son of God. But the Father also bore testimony by way of the Old Testament scriptures and again, uh, many passages that we could look at uh, to bear testimony of the Lord Jesus by the Father. But look with me at one. Turn with me back uh, to the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. just uh, read through this chapter and uh, how the Father bears testimony to the Son uh, in the words of this prophecy. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, 
and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who hath declared his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. A more, a more clear testimony of the Father uh, is not found in the Old Testament scriptures. Many clear references to Christ in the Old Testament, but something uh, I don't think could be uh, all in one section so clear as that portion of God's word uh, as to the ministry of Christ and uh, the redemption of Christ, uh, the death, uh, the persecution uh, that came against him, and the suffering of Christ for our sins as our substitute. In his resurrection, he shall prolong his days. His resurrection is being buried uh, by way of uh, the wealthy and the rich and, and, and entering into their that tomb and and so again um, this is uh, one of many but a, an entire chapter uh, by way of the testimony of the father of course there was the testimony of the father uh, to John the Baptist this is my beloved son uh, in whom I am well pleased and the Lord, the Father working through the Lord Jesus, the miracles that he performed as well. So there was, again, uh, the testimony of both the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus says. In verse 18, when Jesus says, I am one that bear witness of myself, just that phrase, I am, I am. We, last week, spoke with regard to what Jesus says in verse 12, I am the light of the world, and we pointed out that those many I am statements of the Lord Jesus point to him being the great I am of the Old Testament. He's identifying himself as being Jehovah God that revealed himself uh, to Moses uh, there at the burning bush. And so here he uh, is saying, uh, I am the one bearing witness about myself. Uh, 
it's a present participle uh, that is used here in verse 18, I am one that bear witness. Uh, but basically we could uh, say uh, that a present participle, it's a, a nominal, uh, nominative present participle, this could be simply translated, I am the witness. Uh, I am the witness about myself. Just as Jesus declares that he's the faithful witness in Revelation 1.5, as he declares that he is the faithful and true witness uh, in Revelation 3.14. So he here declares, I am uh, the one bearing witness about myself. I am the witness about myself. Again, uh, the Greek words ego, I, a me, I am, I am. And uh, I, I would submit to you here again, Jesus is declaring himself to be Jehovah God. And as those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, as, as we who believe and trust in him, uh, we have a responsibility, a privilege, if you will, but also a responsibility that we must be faithful and true witnesses. We can't simply look at Jesus as being the faithful and true witness and, you know, be um, encouraged by that. But we must walk in his steps that we too must be faithful and true witnesses. If we claim to be united to Christ, we must be united to him as the faithful and true witness. You see, the testimony of our faith, the testimony of our love, the testimony of our words, the testimony of our actions, the testimony of our doctrine within our families, at work, in our neighborhood, in the church, must likewise be faithful and true. We must walk in his steps to be faithful witnesses. We can't, we can't consider ourselves, if we are united to Christ, to be spectators. You know, just sitting in the bleachers and cheering Jesus and other Christians on, we must be out in the field. We must be out in the battle ourselves to be faithful and true witnesses for Jesus Christ. The faithful church of Christ has always been a witnessing church. In bearing the truth of the gospel and all biblical attainments to the truth, but also in exposing the errors of backsliding churches and the tyranny of corrupt civil governments. And so we have a privilege by way of our union with Christ to be like him, 
to walk in his steps, to be a faithful and true witness, but we also have a duty to do so. We can't simply uh, think that we don't have an obligation as, as Christians uh, to take up that banner of being faithful and true witnesses for Christ, for his doctrine in our words, our deeds, and in our families, at work, etc., in the church. This was the ministry of the prophets of old. This was the ministry of being a faithful and true witness was ministry of Christ, was the ministry of the apostles, was the ministry of all the faithful throughout history and of the faithful church. Even if the faithful church is a small remnant, it is to be a witnessing church, bearing testimony through the preaching, uh, through uh, its written documents, its testimony, uh, its standards, its testimony for Jesus Christ and his truth. And this is, again, uh, why our testimony is not a settled testimony, but it's a progressive testimony. The Word of God certainly isn't progressive. It's not changing. Uh, our standards uh, uh, that we appeal to that accurately represent the truth of Jesus Christ, uh, the Westminster Standards, uh, those, those are certainly um, uh, standards that are not progressive. They, they, again, we believe accurately as they are written, represent the truth, summarize the truth of Jesus Christ. But our witness and our testimony for the truth is progressive. It is ongoing. That's the witness and testimony of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. It is an ongoing. They testify for 1260 prophetic days, which are again 1260 years. I believe that we are in that period of time even now. That we are to be taking up the witness and the testimony of Christ, not ashamed not ashamed of that testimony, not compromising that testimony, but honored that we have the privilege to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. If we want to share in the glory of Christ, we must be willing to be now faithful and true witnesses, even if it means our suffering for Christ. It's the unfaithful and false witness and testimony of the backsliding church that we are to expose and not to follow. 
We're not to follow the multitude to do evil, according to Exodus 23.2, whereas we are to follow those who follow Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ, and as we find that example that we are to follow those who follow Christ in Hebrews 6, Verses 10 through 12. Hebrews 6, 10 through 12. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, notice, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Followers of those who have borne a faithful and true witness. They are following Christ and we follow them as they follow Christ. This is how, dear ones, we promote the true unity within Christ's church. It is by following those who follow Christ and exposing those who do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ and his truth. John 8, 19 Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. So when they asked Jesus, Where is thy father? This is not a sincere question, but basically a question uttered with bitter sarcasm. Notice that they don't ask, who is thy father? They ask, where is thy father? They probably, in that context, when they say, where is thy father? Perhaps they're looking around and they're, they're saying, well, where is thy father? I don't see thy father. Where is thy father? So this is, again, probably a question that is... Uh, uh, just filled with great sarcasm as if calling for Jesus to identify from the multitude that's gathered there in the temple uh, his father you know how fire from heaven did not immediately fall uh, upon these uh, who were filled with such sarcasm and hatred of Christ. How it did not consume these scorners is amazing in itself. Uh, they certainly deserved it as we have deserved fire to fall from heaven upon us as well due to our sin. But God is, God is long-suffering. God is long-suffering 
uh, with the wicked. Judgment will come to the wicked, but God is long-suffering. Now understand, when the scripture says that God is long-suffering, it doesn't mean that he's tolerant of sin. It's the difference between tolerant of sin, in which uh, God excuses the sins of people, and he's just simply tolerant with their sins and excusing it, as opposed to being long-suffering, suffering long with their sin, where he doesn't excuse it, but he's just not punishing it as quickly, immediately, as he certainly has the right to do. But that suffering long with sin isn't going to continue forever. Um, the Lord God and the suffering long, his long suffering will indeed come to an end. But his long suffering, Paul says in Romans 2.4, with regard to sin, should lead us to repentance, not cause us to think that God approves of our sin, that God condones our sin, that God excuses our sin at all. Romans 2.4, Paul says, to, uh, he's speaking to these self-righteous Jews. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? So uh, the Lord, in being long-suffering, is certainly giving uh, those uh, who are transgressors and who are like these religious leaders in, in John 8 who are speaking to the Lord Jesus and filled with sarcasm and contempt for him. The Lord is again in not bringing immediate judgment, giving them the opportunity, the time to repent of their sin. Here, Jesus makes clear, in John 8, 19, he makes clear that to know him is to know the Father. Uh, Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my Father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. To know Jesus and to know the Father it's not a mere knowing by way of a profession of faith. It's not a mere intellectual knowing and having certain facts about God in your, in, in your uh, mind. Certainly there will be intellectual knowledge about God if we truly know him. There will be facts from the Bible, truths from the scripture that we will know indeed about God, but it's not merely or only that. That's not, that's not where knowing ends. It may be where knowing begins to know certain things about God uh, intellectually, but it doesn't end there. Uh, this is, this is a, an intimate knowing of Christ, an intimate knowing of God the Father, by way of un uh, union with Christ and communion with Christ. To be united to him by faith, to be joined to him 
uh, by faith, by way of covenant, that kind of covenantal union, and by way of the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, uh, that uh, internal spiritual union with Jesus Christ by way of the Holy Spirit. So a covenantal and spiritual union, both of those being uh, aspects of that union with Christ. And what flows from that is communion. Everyone who is truly united to Christ will commune with Christ and Christ will commune with that individual. Where there is no communion with Christ, there is no union with Christ. These religious leaders prided themselves in their knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. They prided themselves in their knowledge of the Father. Uh, but Jesus here bears witness that they truly do not know the Father because they do not truly know him. The way to the Father is through the Son. To deny that which is essential to Christ, as do Jews, as do Muslims, as do Jehovah Witnesses, as do Mormons, as do deists who deny the divinity of Christ, that he's just a, a good moral teacher, but he's not the Son of God, and any others, to deny that which is essential to Christ is to deny the Father. It's to deny God. It's to bring condemnation upon oneself. To truly see Jesus Christ, Jesus said, to see and behold him uh, and who he is, is to see the Father. According to John 14, 8 through 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But on the other hand, to falsely see Christ is to falsely see the Father. The last verse, John 8, 20, these words spake Jesus in the treasury, that is the treasury within the temple, as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. So these words confirm that from John uh, chapter 8, verse 2, which begins, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. So beginning there, including the whole matter related to the woman caught in adultery uh, up through verse 11 then in verse 12 where he resumes his his uh, teaching and instruction after he is interrupted by the the religious leaders and he resumes and it says then spake Jesus again verse 12 again so he resumes his teaching with I am the light of the world and then uh, continuing on in uh, what Jesus says in the verses that follow all the way to verse 20 up to that point uh, John the Apostle notes that all of this happened there uh, in, the, in the treasury of the temple in that part of the, 
the temple where the where the treasury was, where they placed their offerings. <clears throat> so that's again knowing that it, it ties all of this together. Uh, this whole section is not intended to be. Uh, dissected and, and put into uh, separate categories as, as would be the case if we omit and say, well, verses 2 or the end of uh, John 7, beginning with verse 53 through John 8, 11, uh, that's not a part of the text of, of Scripture. Uh, rather than, again, omitting that and wondering how um, you know, this, this all uh, fits together, how this narrative fits together. If we include that, we find that there is a continuity here, uh, that all of these things happened uh, in the temple. And then finally, one, one last uh, point in verse 20, and no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. Once again, uh, we are told here by the Apostle John that, that no man uh, laid hands on him, and in this particular case even sought to, to lay hands on him, even though he was teaching in such a public place. I mean, uh, he wasn't uh, out in um, uh, the wilderness publicly preaching. I mean, he was in the front yard, as it were, of, the, of, his, uh, of his enemies. Of the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders who despised him. He was there, right there in the temple, teaching and preaching. And then the, and, and the word of God says, the, the apostle John, that no man laid hands on him for his hour has not yet come. Why didn't they lay hands upon him again? Uh, it has to be attributed to the restraint of God. The mighty hand of God restrained the, uh, any, in this occasion, any even attempt uh, to take Christ, to lay hands upon him. Back in John 7, 30, we read, Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. So there it says they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not come. But here it doesn't even say, uh, again, they tried to or sought to. Again, there, there was no, not even an attempt to do so. Though he had just shamed the religious leaders in this whole matter of the woman taken in adultery, it just, it just again, uh, embarrassed them uh, to such a degree in how they handled that situation because they were trying to, to uh, entrap him. And he turned the tables on them, and yet, uh, and he enters into this, this discourse where they uh, are saying to him in verse 13, 
thou bearest record of thyself and thy record is not true. And then Jesus speaks. And then they ask the question of verse 19, where is thy father? And he responds. And in each and every case, uh, he's just, everything they say is being turned back upon them and they are being brought to shame. Yet they did not cry or even attempt to take him because the mighty hand of God uh, was working. It reminds me in Gen Genesis 20, verse 6, uh, concerning uh, King Abimelech, uh, who had taken Sarah, Abraham's wife, into his harem because Abraham had said, this is my sister, I had not said that this is my wife. And uh, God appeared to Abimelech in a dream and uh, basically said, uh, uh, you're a dead man. You've taken uh, another man's wife. And in the dream, Abimelech says, uh, but I didn't know. He said it was his sister, not his wife. And uh, God says in the dream, because you did so out of the integrity, integrity of your heart and did not touch her, did not sexually touch her and morally touch her, um, uh, I have restrained you from uh, doing so. And uh, I've restrained you from uh, falling into that particular sin and that evil and that wickedness. Likewise, we see in the case of Job that God restrained uh, the hand of Satan, that Satan was not able to do anything, uh, that God did not already, uh, did not allow Satan to do. Satan was only able to go as far as God permitted him to go in each and every case. So this teaches us, and the thought I want to leave with you, it teaches us that the wicked can do no harm. Uh, not only they cannot do harm to Christ, they cannot do harm to us who are in Christ uh, unless God wills it. Unless God wills it. And unless God removes his restraint. Not a hair on your head can be touched by the wicked until God in his sovereign love for you and his sovereign wisdom allows it to happen. And when he allows it to happen when he removes his restraint the restraint of his hand so that it happens he does so not because he hates and despises his dear children but he does so because he loves you he does so in wisdom to promote your good even if it means your suffering he does so in order to promote that which is good for you that which is beneficial for you Again, remember, Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, through the Apostle Paul, basically has said that, if, that the only way we're going to reign with Christ is if we suffer with Christ. Uh, we cannot reign with Christ if we do not suffer with him. If we claim to be united, we're not only united to Christ in his glory and all that he's prepared for us in heaven, but we also must be united with him in suffering with and for Jesus Christ. Only as we stand in confidence, dear ones, of this truth, that no one can harm us, no one can hurt us, not a hair of our head can be removed 
Only when we have that confidence of that truth can we truly know the peace of God that passeth all understanding in whatever circumstance or situation we face in this world. May God, by his grace, uh, plant that very deeply, water it in our lives, cause it to grow, that we would walk in that truth day by day. Let us stand in prayer. Our glorious Father, our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, thy testimony is wondrous, it is perfect, it is always true. And Jesus is a faithful and true witness. We would join with him to be likewise faithful and true witnesses of Christ and of his truth. And we would also walk, Lord, in that blessed truth uh, that no one can harm or injure us uh, apart from uh, God willing it until, or, or, until the Lord removes the restraint of his mighty hand. And so when he does so, it's because he has a special plan for us. It's because there is something for us to learn, something for us to grow in, something for us to be taught that we might become more like Jesus who learned obedience through the things that he suffered. We ask our Lord, help us to rest in that, that we might have peace of heart and peace of mind in all uh, of the circumstances that we face in this life. We ask these things through Jesus our Savior. Amen. Are there any questions uh, from the study this evening? All right, thank you all for joining us.